I, I got my focus on passion and empathy Gaining perspectives, investing, I do believe Money and grinding go hand in hand, you will see I'm working smart, expanding my energy Hope that you feeling me, I'm acting differently You got a friend in me I'm working hard to try and work smart No time to complain, it's time to start We gotta work Future millionaires Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Future Millionaires. Today, we got on a real treat for you all. We have on Frank Shankwitz, who is the creator and co-founder of the Make a Wish Foundation, a renowned speaker, as well as recently having a movie come out about his life called Wishman, which is super interesting. So without further ado, Frank, how are you doing today? Uh, great, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure as well, Frank. So I'd love for you to give me and the listeners a 60-second snippet of really where you're focused at right now in your life and business and what that's looking like for you on your end with everything you got going on. Well, right now, my biggest emphasis, I'm retired state police and I've got some free time, but my speaking career, like you mentioned, the movie, we're still pushing that. But I'm also involved, I sat on the board of six nonprofits around the United States. Uh, being retired now, it's giving me more time to devote to other nonprofit organizations to help them develop, grow, uh, give some insight. And especially in today's time, um, it's very rough because of what's going on. Yeah. Nonprofits to survive, in fact. Wow. Okay. So we'll definitely dive into that as the podcast, you know, goes on here. But I would also love, you know, we got a lot of younger listeners here, and I love for you to share a bit about your early upbringing and really, you know, how you were brought up and just so they can kind of relate a little more to that aspect and how it kind of transitioned into where you are today. Well, and, and my story, my upbringing is a little unusual, but not unlike a lot of people, but I guess enough where Hollywood decided to make a movie about it. (laughs) But, and, and I'm, I'm a World War II baby. So, you know, we're going back in the early forties, but, uh, my mother left me at age two. I lived with my dad, my grandparents, fun times at age five. She kidnapped me off a kindergarten playground. I had no idea who this lady was. And for the next several years, especially the first five years from age five to 10, uh, a survival type thing. Um, whatever my mother's issue was, I didn't know. We ended up in not far from you up in northern peninsula of Michigan, up above Escanaba, little yeah. part of Cedar River. And... Uh, in the summertime, we lived in a tent in a campground. In the wintertime, she pulled an old flop house. Um, always cold, always hungry, uh, just trying to survive was the biggest thing. But during that time, uh, probably the best lesson for me was survival, how to learn, even at a young age, how to survive, how to start taking care of yourself. At 10 years old, uh, she, my father had found us and went to get the sheriff to arrest her. And that short period, everything was thrown into a Jeep. Off we went to Arizona, where she really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And um, at 10 years old, ended up in a little town called Sligman, Arizona, just outside on old Route 66. Mm-hmm. She had run out of gas completely, out of money, had no idea what to do. A rancher took us in. And for the next six weeks, we lived at his ranch house, very small. Our bedroom was the kitchen floor, a couple of bedrooms on the kitchen floor. Wow. But this was the first time now that we really had somewhat, what would you call, we lived in a town. I yeah. actually got to go to a school. I actually got to have friends, but developed a mentor at age 10 years old that started teaching me, a gentleman by the name of Juan Delgadillo, and just became my father figure. And it's so important, the lessons he taught me from that age to what I carry on today, uh, how to give back, how to help other people out taught me a work ethic, got me involved with sports, which I had never played before. Um, taught me carpentry. I no, had no father figure to ever do that. I helped him build yeah. this that he was building. But just the influence of my life on that, and then going to high school, my coaches in that, my teachers, going into the Air Force uh, after mm-hmm. graduating high school. Again, the mentors in the Air Force saw something special, got me on special details, honors, and so on. And, and then from there, going into the adult world, yeah. So, so one thing that was really apparent to me just throughout your early upbringing and whatnot was mentorship and how that was, you know, impactful in your life. So what would you say to, you know, young people today who are seeking mentors or they feel like they need to make a change in their life or they're not getting the information, the knowledge that they need right now? 
what, what would you recommend for them to look for in their mentors and how to approach that? Well, and, and young people, especially young people, and even into the, what I know call, I like to call them now new adults, not young adults. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> but their minds are like a sponge. Yeah. But you filter out. And this is one of the things Juan taught me too, and this is at age 10 and so on, is I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of suggestions. And I even tell my grandkids, my kids and that, and kind of filter out what you think is going to work for you. Just, mm. I, I never want to say you have to. I'm yeah. gonna, I suggest you try this, see if it works for you. But listen to those mentors. There's so much knowledge, especially us senior citizens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever's happened, we've been through it before. And and hopefully we have some good advice to follow. Definitely, definitely. So when it came to, you know, starting Make-A-Wish and whatnot, what was really the inspiration behind that? What inspired you to take action to do something, you know, that ended up becoming so renowned and really impacted so many people? Well, at the time, I was a uh, Arizona Highway Patrol motorcycle officer. I was always also on what they called a fatal team. Um, we investigated the most horrific accidents, and so many involved children all the time. So, and then mm-hmm. accidents, so many children we see mangled up, killed in car wrecks. And it's always special when a child, when you can do something to help a child. And when meeting a little boy named Chris, seven-year-old Chris, who had terminal leukemia, who became the inspiration to start that foundation. It just gave me the idea that what we did for Chris, we can now do for children all over, starting with Arizona, where we started. But I made a bold prediction after our first official wish that someday we're going to be granting wishes all over the world. And they laughed at me, but who had the last laugh here, which is what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible because... One thing I was really curious to hear more about was really your vision when you started the foundation. And like you said, you kind of spoke it into existence of how, how big it did get. So it makes me curious. I hear, you know, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs and I hear a lot about, you know, the law of attraction um, and, you know, that realm of kind of like mindset and how you can kind of speak things into existence if you act on them. So I'm curious what your opinion and outlook on, you know, like the law of attraction and that kind of, you know, area is. One of the differences between profit and nonprofit is for nonprofit, I'm not looking to make any money except for the foundation. Mm-hmm. For for-profit, they have to make the money to keep in existence. Yeah. For nonprofit. And I, I never took a salary all the years I associated with Make-A-Wish because that's not what the mission was about. It was about helping the kids. Yeah. And give back, like I was taught earlier, to give back. And I, I even worked extra jobs. Uh, luckily, as a police officer, you can pick up off-duty jobs for personal security, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I would work 20-hour days, so that extra money would go to develop this foundation. Wow. So th- that's how you funded it, getting started out, was just those long days and making sure that you spent your money wisely with all that. Yes, and, and we didn't really start getting donations until we started it in November of 1980. We became official. Our mm-hmm. first wish, official wish, wasn't until March of 1981. But because of that particular wish, we got press coverage. And this is before the days of internet. Or yeah. Or yeah, yeah. But the media covered us so much on that first wish, we started getting donations from literally all over the United States. The mom and pop dollars, like they like to call it. Uh, the $10 mm-hmm. checks, the $20 checks, which really add up. And of course, look at the value of a dollar in 1981 compared to now. True. So, it was a big instant success. Nobody ever heard of anything like this. And that's why we got so much press coverage. Okay, gotcha. So then getting started, what what was the hardest part? Would you say it was just, you know, those first few months of making sure you could finance it, get everything set up? Or was there another big difficulty you ran into? Well, the hardest part was I'm a police officer. How do I start a nonprofit foundation? Yeah, yeah. Anybody remember uh, library cards? Yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah. You go to, again, before internet, you go to library, you research how to start a nonprofit, what you need to do. But the biggest thing was in Arizona, for the Corporation Commission to start a nonprofit, you had to have five members. And when I came back from burying this little boy that gave me the inspiration, I went to several people that were involved with his wish, per se. I've got this idea. I want to start this nonprofit. So many people said it'll never work. I don't want to be involved. That was the hardest part was to find four other individuals with that same mindset. 
Mm. Finally, I finally did start that. Now, again, how do you start a foundation? Research, what do I need for IRS rules and so on? Yeah. Fortunately, I had an attorney that was a close friend. And that's not an oxymoron, by the way. Attorneys can be friends. So, <laughs> but again, finding that people help put it together. And, and it, like I said, it took several months. But once we got that group of five together, let's do this. Let's make it happen. And there were so many times that I just want to say, I can't do this. I can't work like this. I can't put everything together. I can't yeah. do both. And I remember my mentor, Juan, who told me, and I mentioned this earlier, don't give up. If somebody says you can't do something, find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. Just find a way to do it. And, and that's what we did. That's what our team did. That It's always a team effort, correct? Not one individual. And yeah. Uh, we finally got it going, but don't, don't give up on your goals. I've got a close friend now that came up with a new term called stickability. In fact, at St. Norbert College, I use that in the commencement address and the uh, students, I think, got a kick out of that. Stickability. Don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. Which clearly is something you persevere through, especially with convincing five people. Cause you said you had five, like when you started before you guys had even granted, um, you know, your first wish, correct? Correct. So how did you go about, you know, convincing those five people because I could see everyone's busy you know I'm assuming everyone at that point had jobs and how did you go about you know really selling the vision on how this was going to be so impactful well I ended up with five people that were associated with the Arizona Highway Patrol the wife of one of our officers uh two officers themselves and finally the little boy's mother Chris's mother mm. uh Linda and and said look I know what you went through with your son and we want to be, there's other children like him. Let's help them out. And when we started Make-A-Wish, it was for terminal children. None of the children were surviving. Leukemia, yeah. death sentence. And now 40 years later, the mission is children with life-threatening illnesses because mm -hmm. through the grace of God and modern medicine, more and more children, in fact, are surviving. Yeah, that's awesome. So, when you started too, I know that you said you had a lot of immediate press coverage after your first wish. And how did you guys continue to grow after that? Because I'm assuming that really helped, but it didn't like, you know, spurt all the rest of the growth. Like kind of what were some strategies that you used to continue to get press coverage that you used to continue to, you know, spread the mission and the awareness of the foundation? Well, and not taken away, it was in fact the press. Because mm -hmm. when we did our first official wish, which was a Disney, the first time we did a Disney wish, and Disney exploded this all over the United States. Mm. And we didn't have to do anything except people started coming to us. This is great. I've never heard of anything. Let's, how can I help? How can I donate? Especially with the in-kind donations we started getting in. All of a sudden, we have an office. All of a sudden, we have copy machines, typewriters. There's no computers then. Even yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it was the press, but the biggest thing was the integrity of the foundation. Mm. And that's what I based it on. That's what I was thought about, integrity, character. Uh, and uh, the biggest thing, I'm always doing conference, press conferences back then, accountability. Here's the police officer that's starting something. What is he up to? Is he trying to put money in his own pocket? Accountability. Folks, the books are open. Whenever you want to see them, see where mm. the money's going. But the biggest thing, like I said earlier, is myself or nobody else ever took a salary. So they can't say, oh, the money's going into your pocket trips and so on. Oh, the money's mm -hmm. going 100% into the mission. Wow. That is incredible that you guys were able to, you know, still work your jobs while granting all these wishes. And because a crazy amount of wishes granted, isn't it almost like half a million now? Well, yeah. So 40 years later, over half a million wishes worldwide. But after a while, I had to make a career choice. Am I going to be a police officer, and am I going to run a nonprofit foundation? Mm -hmm. now, I was, I'm boasting I was an excellent police officer. I was <laughs> a novice in the nonprofit world. And that's when our board decided we need to start hiring somebody. When you go to college courses, you always learn, hire somebody smarter than you. Surround yeah. yourself with people smarter than you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we decided we had to do. We had to start hiring the people to run the foundation. We needed especially a CFO, a chief financial officer. This money's coming in. We have to have the quarter reports to IRS. We're not the experts in it. Let's start yeah. hiring those experts. And that was the biggest, biggest I think, boost for Make-A-Wish at the time as we pushed ourselves to the side, hire the CEO to run that foundation, 
which over the years made it grow. I think there's been 10 CEOs, including myself being the first one over the years, mm -hmm. have made it grow to what it is today. Get surrounding yourself with people smarter than you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip I know for life and business because that's why I like to hop on these calls with people like you. You know what I mean? And that's why I like letting the listeners like hear this kind of stuff because it's so impactful, especially if you apply it like you did with your mentors. It, it's huge. And I know there's a lot of people out there today that are starting their own nonprofits or you know their own foundations, charities, or they might have already started one. What would your advice be for them to get that press coverage to really help them grow so they can, you know, make a big impact on this world? Well, the biggest thing, like I said earlier, make sure it's about the mission and not themselves. Uh, so, so many people started a nonprofit. I did a lot of consulting work. I still do. I, like I said, I sat on the board of six nonprofits around the United mm -hmm. States. But people say, uh, they contact me, will you help me out? I'd like to start this nonprofit. How much salary can I take? When I hear that first word, I say goodbye because it's about yeah. them. They're trying mm -hmm. to get really an easy buck is what they're doing. Yeah. Make it about the mission. Make it about whatever it is. Unfortunately, Wounded Warriors, which is a very top right now nonprofit, took a big hit a couple of years ago because they were using so much money for fancy trips, cars, everything else. Forgetting mm -hmm. about the guys that need it are wounded warriors and it's taken them a couple of years to get back to that four-star rating but they've done it because okay this is what the mission is about but in today's world right now to start a nonprofit is going to be very difficult even the nonprofits that are well established are starting to have financial issues and you can understand that mm -hmm. right now because of the coronavirus need to take care of themselves but when the corporate people are stepping up which really I mean, they have for years, but look what the mm -hmm. corporate people are doing so much right now. Yeah. Uh, what's the guy, my pillow or something like that? Oh, <laughs> um, gosh. Uh, like Chuck Liddell or something? I, I can't think of his name right yeah. now. But all of a sudden, his factory is going to start producing masks, everything else. Uh, Ford, mm. looking forward, they're shutting down one of the lines to start making ventilators. Uh, brand image is so important because GM, which has always had a good brand image, all of a sudden, oops, we got a hiccup. Because, yeah, we'll make ventilators, but we're not going to do our plant. I think they're making like maybe 5000 a week instead of, and President Trump just initiated the war acts to them to start mm -hmm. turn those factories over like World War II. So yeah. Stuff we need to help people survive. But just that brand advancement all the time. Definitely. So throughout your life, too, with your habits and what has made you successful, you know, things that your mentors have taught you that you have applied. Really, what do you think that the main habits you are that have led to the success in being able to, you know, achieve these these notable accomplishments? Well, and, and don't forget my true career as a police officer. Mm -hmm. We turned over Make-A-Wish to the professionals years and years ago. Yeah. But even in my professional career as a police officer and also sitting on these several boards, all biggest thing is, again, integrity and character. Mm. that to me that's the biggest thing and respect and i tell that you mentioned about young people respect yeah. if i was taught if first respect yourself if you respect yourself then you're going to respect others and others are going to respect you mm -hmm. that's huge now that's a huge takeaway for people because i always i see a lot of times with young people specifically they will almost either even like try to help others before they're really good themselves. You know what I mean? I think it's the same thing with respect and figuring out how you can first apply that in your life. So then you can help others and teach them how to respect themselves in the same exact way. Well, and you just mentioned something too, uh, Les Brown, a very well-known speaker. And mm -hmm. this from him, he said about young people, fill your own cup first, mm -hmm. which is something I've never did my whole life. And what that means is, as money, as finances start coming in, fill your cup. Make sure you take care of you, your family, that you're set. And when that cup starts overflowing, then you can start taking care of others. In other words, donations, whatever it might be, to start helping other people. And that's a mistake I made. I never filled my cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and young people, I think that's a very good lesson. I try and teach my grandchildren that. And when I say financially stable, I don't mean the big houses and cars, just yeah. taking care of you and your family. And then it starts so simple. Um, and I see so many kids, and we, we live in Northern Arizona, a very small population up here. But I just the other day saw, uh, and I'm saying young kids in their 20s, mm -hmm. 
buy a cup of coffee at a, at a Circle K at a convenience type mark for somebody. There were some mm-hmm. nurses in there. Uh, some young kids were together, kids in their 20s. They mm-hmm. were getting, the nurses getting snacks and this and that. The kids took care of it. The kids, I'm sorry, the young adults. <laughs> but something like that, they're giving back. And then a uh, study on USA Today showed that the millennial population is very involved with nonprofits. You would think it's millennial is all about me, the me generation. That's not true. They are trying to help others. They're trying to give back. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I think that, you know, especially in the younger generations, like there's more of a collective approach to try to solve a lot of problems. And I think that's a really positive thing. But I'd love for us to pivot a little bit too and talk about the movie that um, you made with Greg. And I just, I watched it. I loved it. I thought it was fascinating, uh, you know, your whole story with it. So I'm curious what your first reaction to watching the movie about your own life was. Well, it, I watched the dailies, so to come it all together. And for the movie, uh, I was a consultant, producer, location scout, mm-hmm. and technical advisor. So for five years, I was involved, six years, involved daily with the production of the movie. And we, like I said, we'd see the dailies at the end. Um, then we'd see some of the rough edits. We watched it on some TV screens, what we thought was the final. But we didn't get to see it really on the big, big screen until the movie premiere in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. you know the big red carpet and everything else and the biggest thing i was looking for on that was the reaction of the audience yeah i knew it's theo davies was the director that wrote the screenplay what a great job he did yeah and i knew at certain points in the movie what the reaction is looking for is he going to get the laughter is he going to get the sobs are you going to see the clinics really coming out just all those reactions on key points and I was watching more of the reaction of the audience. Because now we got the big, big screen. You've got the perfect sound. You've got the lighting that he was looking for. He can see it compared to a television set. And every reaction he was looking for was coming across on that. And yeah. I was more interested in that than anything. Now, I've seen it several times on other big screens. And it must be some type of a dust or something in the theater because I'm going like this every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> Reliving, reliving what actually happened to me, and the actor yeah. did a good job on this. That uh, it was very emotional on parts, and others I'm laughing when it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. And for listeners who you know might listen to this interview after they watch the movie, or they might you know listen to it and then watch the movie, were there any big you know differences um, from the movie to you know real life that were just pretty notable that were kind of either upplayed or downplayed for the movie? Well, when, when you go to the movie and it starts out based on a true story, <clears throat> that's not the true story, right? Hollywood embellishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why it took so long to write the screenplay for Theo, because I was a consultant on there. I said, we're mm-hmm. not going to do this. We have to do this. And we decided about 70% of the movie is, in fact, factual. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it just took a lot of scenes. And I'm not going to give it away. Are there certain scenes in the movie that are so emotional, it did, in fact, really happen that way. Yeah. But I learned working with Hollywood all those years that what the actors and the directors looking for is what they call the arc for the actor. If we wanted to make it a true story, it's a documentary. It'll be on the History Channel. Yeah. And that actor is looking for that arc where they can show that emotion up and down. I mean, and the actors in there did such a great job, especially on this one scene where father and son meet in later years. I mean... I think Kleenex uh, all of a sudden sold more stock <laughs> because of that scene. <laughs> Selling boxes of Kleenex. Yeah. And, yes. and this is the movie we're talking about, if we, if we haven't talked about, The Wishman. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, available on Netflix right now. In fact, we just got extended for three more years. Because Congrats. Because of the movie. And uh, my manager, David Vanderbloom, and you can contact him on my website, wishman One dot com the number one wishmail1.com and uh see how you can get an autographed copy ha, look at that guys all right that's an awesome offer i appreciate you for you know sharing that with everyone today and when when you decided that you were actually going to do this movie like what did that look like you know how did this come up was it something you were thinking of like how did you decide that okay you know what we're, we're making a movie well no nothing that i ever dreamed about in my life yeah but I was speaking at an event. You mentioned Greg Reed. Yeah. And speaking at one of his events, and he said, uh, next month we're going to film a documentary called Stickability. 
and it's going to be like our regular secret knock event that he puts on. Mm -hmm. I want you to be one of the speakers on stage, and we're going to have a canned audience per se, but also a lot of extras in there, and just tell your story like you normally do in your speaking event, and which I did, and standing ovation. I mean, the place went crazy, which wasn't staged at that point. But the director, Theo Davies, came back to me afterwards and he said, I've never seen an audience reaction to a speaker like that. And I want to make a movie about you. And I thought he talked about a documentary. And I said, no, I'm not interested. He said, no, I want to make a movie. And I forgot backing up on that part. They surprised me. Greg came up afterwards. And he said, what's your wish? You've granted wishes all over the world. What's your wish? And I said, I never thought about that. He said, you want a Lamborghini? You want something special, a fancy vacation? I said, just like to have my story told and not even talking about a movie. Yeah, yeah. And that's what triggered that whole thing. And Theo said, okay, we're going to do a feature film. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, we are. Uh -huh. Biggest thing I said was, okay, I'll agree to that, but I want in my contract complete script approval mm. because what we talked about, the embellishment of a movie. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad I did that. That's why it took him two and a half years for him to write that screenplay where both him and I agreed. A give and take, definitely, give and take. On it. Yeah. But then the whole process, like I said, location scout. I wanted this movie filmed in Arizona. Arizona doesn't give tax credits to Hollywood anymore. Mm -hmm. and they wanted to film it in Georgia or New Mexico, where most of your films are made right now, Utah. And I lobbied real hard. And I said, if I can save you a million or more dollars just on locations, can we do it here? They said, well, yeah. And because of this area that people know me, uh, there's an empty warehouse. Guys, I'm going to turn this to the studio. By the way, I want you to turn on electricity. You're going to pay for it, air conditioning, plumbing, everything else. Okay, we'll do that. Uh, bars and restaurants. We need to shut you down for a couple of days. We're going to film in here. Well, we charge $20,000 a day. Well, no, remember, we're friends. Okay, we'll do that. Yeah. And it came up where we saved well over a million dollars just on locations. And that's why they decided to come to Arizona. And then once we got the locations, uh, the getting the cast, the crew, and everything else, that took uh, almost uh, six months on that. But then everything came together and in June of 2017, or excuse me, September 2017, we started filming. And it was a full 28-day shoot, uh, which totaled but beforehand, so about six full weeks between set design and filming. And but the biggest thing to me in this whole filming process was being in a location, I mean, the consulting uh, producer and script uh, supervisor, I talked every morning. We were the first one on a set with the script supervisor, lovely yeah. girl named Kennedy Del Toro. And we're looking at the set design for the day, the continuity, the costumes, the, everything else. And the third day in, Kennedy came in and she started crying and gave me a hug. And I mean, really crying. Kennedy, what's wrong? And she knew who I was. She knew who the movie was about. She was a wish child. Mm. Now we got the whole crew in cast, right? Yeah, I can imagine. And when, she, and when she was 11 years old, she had a wish. She wanted to go to Hollywood and learn how to be an actress. She was too ill. At age 17, she went into remission. And she was from New Mexico. The chapter mm -hmm. there said, would you still like to go to Hollywood? Yes, I would. Halfway through the school, she became very interested in the production side of it instead of the acting. And the, the director at the school offered her an internship for the summer. And she said, I'd like to try that. And they started working as a script supervisor. Uh, halfway through the summer, the regular script supervisors didn't show up a couple of times. Director said, she's fired, you're hired. And now this wish child is all over the world. Just the greatest career because of her wish. And we were there for her. That's incredible. Wow. I, I had no clue either. I'm super glad you shared that. And gosh, so... Out of all the things, you know, you've done between the movie, the foundation, your career as an officer, you know, do you think you can put a finger on what you personally are most proud of throughout your life that, you know, you accomplished? Well, obviously the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but I want to say that, that I had an idea and made it work. But mm -hmm. again, that's not, the team made it work. And look at the thousands of people around the world that continue to make that idea work and grow. So I had an idea and I made it work, but it, it just took everybody to keep making it work. Yeah. But also as my career as a police officer, I'm just so proud of that. I ended up with our homicide division. Mm -hmm. and, uh, just the closure of so many families, um, finding, finding the suspect, getting them put away, the closure for the families, just giving back as much as I could for the community. 
and right now even. So it's not just one thing. Yeah. Giving back now to the community by sitting on these boards of other nonprofits to help people out. Awesome. Awesome. And then throughout that journey, I know you shared multiple like hard points. Was there a point where you were just like, yeah, that was the most difficult point in my life. You know, the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome just throughout your journey as a human. Well, we all have that. We all have hiccups starting from kids, no matter what, even today, uh-huh. all hiccups in your life and how to overcome them. And probably, and, and, you know, I really didn't start talking about this until about 10 years ago. Great Reed, in fact, said you need to start talking about the incident in your life. Uh, when I was mm-hmm. killed in the line of duty and brought back to life. Yeah. And the recovery period, because of traumatic brain injury, bulk and bones, skull fracture, et cetera. And just what is the purpose of the life? Why, why am I still here? Obviously very down, very depressed. And then it was an accidental meeting of this little boy in 1980 that just changed my whole life around. And because of him, changed the lives of millions of people. Yeah. So, yeah, and that, that is crazy. Do you want to tell people just a little bit more about kind of like your process of recovering from literally when you were like announced dead and brought back to life? Well, and, and a recovery process. I mean, it's not people go through this every day, hundreds uh-huh. of people, but it's just the support I got from my uh, then girlfriend. If you watch the movie, <laughs> you know that part. Watch the movie, you'll see that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. But just then, but just then, I mean, again, it had to be support. Everything is support. Now, the funny part was too, because of traumatic brain injury, learning uh, muscle movement again, muscle memory, uh, brain memory, like picking up a fork. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I want to pick up the fork. Okay, out the fork. Now I want to get the food. Okay, now I want to put it in my mouth instead of sticking it in my ear. And I'm making humor of that, but that's what happens. Yeah. People have to go through this. And at first I was getting frustrated, but to be a police officer, and David knows this, you've got to have a sense of humor with everything you see every day. So as I start to stick up my ear instead of my mouth, I just start laughing. And this is funny. Now the big mission is, okay, now I'm going to get this fork and actually get it to my mouth. Yeah. So it's almost a self-therapy type thing. Yeah. I mean... I just appreciate you sharing that because I feel like on a much, you know, like less severe scale, that is so much about how a lot of people start whatever they're trying to accomplish in their life is just on like such a basic level. And they they get frustrated because the progress isn't as fast as they want. And I just feel like that's huge. And as well as like getting outside your comfort zone when other people are not like telling you, they told you, oh, this won't make it big. You know, this won't happen. Like, how do you view getting outside of your comfort zone? And especially for young people, like, you know, starting something that they're not comfortable with or diving into something that they don't know much about. Well, and, and we all do that, right? I mean, just what you said, your comfort zone is at home watching your feet playing video games, whatever it might be. You've got your first job. You're very uncomfortable in that job, even if it's flipping burgers. But mm-hmm. guess what? You're going to be, and this is that work ethic that I was taught. I'm going to be the best burger flipper they ever have here. Mm. And I tell people, too, to succeed. You're supposed to be at work at 8 o'clock. And, and we know in the police force and military, okay, you're going to be there at 7.30. You're supposed mm-hmm. to be at 5. Well, I'm going to get off finally about 5.15, 5.20, because I'm going to make sure everything's done for the day. And that gets people noticing you. It's always that work ethic that's going to make you grow all the time, have people watch you. And that's happened throughout my life. And it was, again, not something that I, I, I was taught to do that. It wasn't something I had to force myself. But my mm-hmm. mentors, listen to your mentors. Uh, my grandchildren, which are now adults, uh, they finally listen to that. They've got, they've got good jobs now where they're practicing that. They're going in early. They're staying a little bit late. The boss is saying, you, it's been time to go home. Well, I'm trying to finish here, boss. I want to make sure this is all cleaned up. Oh, okay. Here comes a promotion. Yeah. So is that the kind of stuff too that, you know, when you were hiring um, a CEO for the first time with Make-A-Wish and whatnot, is that the kind of traits that you were looking for? Like somebody who really wants to go above and beyond as well as has, you know, the knowledge and expertise? Well, yes, especially on that because somebody in the nonprofit world that has a background, but the biggest thing that we were looking for, like this is for the nonprofit and also for the profit world, mm-hmm. is something with a great big Rolodex. And I mm. still apply that to the people that are the CEO of the boards that I sat on right now. Uh, find the people that are board members with a big Rolodex, meaning they know other people. They know the contacts, how to get there. Mm-hmm. We need to, who do we know that can help us get this? Okay, I'm a Rolodex. I know so-and-so. Yeah. 
A lot of people don't know what a Rolodex is anymore, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they'll have them in the contacts then, right? Yeah, <laughs> in the iPhone. List. A contact list is what we call it now. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So with relationship building in your life, you know, what kind of role has that played and what kind of, you know, opportunities, doors has it opened for you and, you know, friends, loved ones, whatever it may be. Well, and, and be open to everybody, be polite to everybody. Like I mentioned about respect, mm-hmm. you respect yourself, you respect others. Now I'm on the speaking circuit, not right now, obviously. Mm-hmm. And my meet and greets are usually, and I'm not boasting here, even though I was the Forbes number one speaker in 2016. <laughs> That's awesome. Meet and greets are usually an hour and a half to two hours. And Dang. it's because so many people are related to the subjects I'm talking about, especially make a wish of so many mm-hmm. audience are, father, brother, sister, actual worst child in that. But even on those meet and greets, someone will come, oh, I'm so happy to meet you. And I'll stop them. I'll interrupt them. Say, I'm sorry, what's your name? Get the name. Oh, no, where are you from? You local here? I start asking a little bit about them because mm. if they're polite enough to come up and want to meet me and talk to me, I want to return that. And that all of a sudden shows that bond, that closeness. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about us. And you do yeah. that the same thing in the business world. I've met so many people on the business world that are so successful in, in the for-profit industry. And that's what they do. They relate to their people. They relate to their employees. We relate to strangers. Just, I'm, I'm one of the guys. Yeah, no, that, that humility is really like, I can just tell from our time talking today that that has been such a huge part throughout your life. It's just being level-headed and never feeling like you're necessarily above anything. And with your speaking and whatnot too, how, how did you kind of get that kicked off? And what are some tips for people who would be interested to start speaking themselves? What would what advice would you give them? Well, when I you asked how to kick off or make a wish for years when I left as a president and CEO, make a wish, what we call national and even international, kept me on as what they call the wish ambassador mm-hmm. and literally sent me all over the world on meet and greets on the big galas to help spread the word, to get the donations and that. Mm-hmm. And it's just when I was getting ready to retire, and this was in 2011, Greg Reed, who had listened to one of my presentations, came up and said, how much do you charge for speaking? I said, well, this is Make-A-Wish. I don't charge for my foundation. He said, no, I want to get you on a circuit speaking to other platforms, especially corporate. And I said, well, I never thought about it. And he said, well, think about it. Now, again, I'm in my 60s, and I've got a new mentor who's quite mm-hmm. a bit younger than me. But listen, and he he just kind of steered me what I needed to do to talk to the corporate world instead of to the black world. And again, it just it was that natural ability because I've been doing this so long. But you mentioned the word humility and just getting the words out. And one of, I'm one of the speakers that doesn't sell anything from stage except the message. Mm. So many speakers, I get so upset with that. I've got a program today that's worth $5,000, but today only you can get it for $19.95. Like I'm selling Jinsu knives or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just selling a message, that's all, to give back. And that's what made it, I think, so popular. And again, resonate with the audience. You can feel the audience. You can feel if you've got them or not. Yeah. And make it about, it's not about me, it's about them, the message I'm trying to give to them, which resulted, like I say, a very big honor for Forbes' number one keynote speaker in 2016 out of the thousands of speakers that are out there. Yeah. And and just getting to the right audiences. But again, you start at your novice. I mean, you're getting to a little group of 30, you're getting to a group of 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll pay your expenses. Uh, well, so, well, we'll pay you a little bit to appear. Now we're going to pay you a lot here because you've got these great big audiences, 500 to 1,000. And as long as you're getting your messages there, you stay popular. Yeah. So we're starting to wrap up towards the end of the podcast here. But there's one thing I always like to ask my guests. And I feel like this is going to be especially applicable for you and how you view your growth in your life. And that question is, you know, even even throughout your life with all the success that you've had and, you know, the different things that you've done, what is something that you're still looking to improve upon as, you know, whether that be in your person, um, in your speaking career, your foundation, whatever it is, just one thing you're still looking to improve upon in your current day? Well, the two big things right now is obviously the speaking career. Mm-hmm. Uh, three things, the promotion of the movie and the book. Mm-hmm. And But the biggest thing for me right now is the promotion and the development and advancement of the nonprofit boards I set on right now to, to make these really grow. We've got so many new yeah. ones here of our 501c3 and there's already interest 
nationwide. How do we get mm -hmm. chapters like Make-A-Wish in this city and that city? And once this little, and this is going to be over, this coronavirus, things are going to go back to normal. Yeah. And really to push these to make it grow. Because after this is over, I really think people, when they can, when they're financially available to do it, are going to want more help, want to help more people, want to give back. Mm -hmm. So that's my biggest focus right now, is let's really get these, the movie, <laughs> the book, and the nonprofits really cooking, really yeah. good. Yeah, you got, a, you got a bit on your plate there, but I got no doubt you're going to be getting it done, Frank. But so with that all being said, where's the best place, you know, if a young person wanted to reach out to even help with one of these nonprofits that you sit on the boards of, would you mind, you know, naming those out and then the best place that, you know, someone could reach you at or reach one of the member of the board at, of that nonprofit to help with? Yeah, and, and they can contact me uh, via the, my website, wishman One the number one wish man mm -hmm. one. And because of this movie right now, David, my manager is sending me forward to me emails that come through the website without exaggerating 15 to 20 every day from all over the world about yeah. the impact this movie's made. In fact, we just recently got one from uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. I mean, uh -huh. this is as far as the message is going. And they can also contact me via my uh, Facebook page, mm -hmm. Shanklet's on Facebook. But the nonprofits I'm working with right now, and there might be some of your listeners in their area, uh, Number one, in fact, is Level Up Homes, which is based out of Seattle. This is a new nonprofit. 1A, do we have some time for this? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, okay. When a foster child turns 18, uh, they're politely said they're removed from the system. No, they're kicked out. They're put on the street. They have nowhere, mm -hmm. to, they have nowhere to go. And we're developing a series of group homes started in Seattle where the children, I still call them children, 18 to 23 can live they can finish high school enter college enter the workforce yeah learn, learn how to become that new adult so they can take care of themselves and we've already got requests how do we do this in los angeles san francisco all yeah. of the project kind this is out of new jersey mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned the young people a young lady named jennifer DePaul is putting this together her mind is like a sponge she actually flew out to arizona came up to this little town to spend a couple of days with me about putting together this nonprofit, how to incredible. And what what they do is for the homeless. And she's in the Jersey City, Newark type area. Mm -hmm. All the homeless people out there, where she's getting them clothes, she's getting them shelter, food, whatever they can do, especially right now. Broadway Hearts out of New York City. This is a real fun one. I know several uh, cast members from the Phantom of the Opera, and we've put together this nonprofit where these cast members from the Broadway shows go into the children's hospitals and into the Ronald McDonald houses in those areas. Mm -hmm. Go entertain the kids, sing and dance the Disney type songs, and then also develop scholarship for the children who are interested in the arts in future years. Yeah. Again, we're getting requests from all over. How do we get this in our theatrical type cities? The Wounded Blue. This is based out of Las Vegas. Some board of directors there. When a police officer gets hurt in a line of duty, people think it's like the military, that they will take care of him. Medically, they'll take care of him financially. I mean, mm -hmm. everything taken care of. Even if he has to get a medical retirement, that's not true. Police officer gets wounded in a line of duty. He uses his own hospitalization. He uses his own sick leave. Uh, when that runs out, he doesn't get paid. And also the PTSD issues with the police officers. Yeah. Over, over 200 and some uh, killed themselves in line of duty because of PTSD. So we're developing where we can take care of that officer until he goes back to work. But especially with the PTSD, and I, I encountered that myself working in homicide. Uh, Sarge, I've seen I got to talk to a constant. If you can't handle it, you're fired. And that goes on all over the nation today, even. And we're developed right now. We have over 80 counselors nationwide. These offices can go to on private counseling. Their department won't know about it. We call it, let's get the ghost out of our head and get back to work. Awesome. U.S. VET, it's not part of the Veterans Administration. Uh, chapters all over the United States. And our mission is to find the homeless veterans, get them into temporary housing, get them into job training, job placement, permanent housing. One of the top nonprofits in the United States, 86 cents of every dollar goes actually to the mission. Unheard of in the nonprofit world. Yeah, that is really high. So successful up here. Uh, Safe Beat, a new one out of Georgia. Um, so many kids are suffering in athletic type games, heart attack, mm. because they are the parents or the coaches and teachers don't know the signs of them. And it's not because they have heart conditions. It's just the environment they be in at the time. So safe beat, we're going starting in a Georgia area, educating the teachers, the coaches, the kids, the parents on what to look for for these type heart conditions. And again, how do we get this all over the world or the nation? 
the fun one, I'm the only member, male member, women of global change. <laughs> <laughs> and, and these ladies from all over the United States, they work with third world countries, bringing in schools, mm. building schools, clean water, whatever it might be. And in the United States, we recently had a convention in um, Las Vegas last October where they raised so much money for the Las Vegas Metro for their uh, Christmas toy drive. Mm. And again, just all over the United States, a young lady named Shelly Hunt in Los Angeles put this together and asked me to be a member. And I'm kind of intimidated by being the only <laughs> male board member. So yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. want to upset these ladies. Yes, ma'am. No, ma <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I'm involved in right now. That's incredible. That's awesome. I mean, my, my only last question before we wrap up is, you know, how do you manage your time with this all? Uh, I, I don't. I've got this this manager that's on me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David David arranges this. Uh, everything I do, I try and go to my manager, David. Yeah. And, and so he schedules it as best he can. He says, you know, when do you have time for this? Now, with like your podcast right now, I would have to mm -hmm. schedule three or four months in advance. Mm -hmm. but because of the virus right now what's going on is david is letting me catch up with all of these requests and and i enjoy doing these i mean mm -hmm. really enjoy doing these but because usually i'm on an airplane every other week somewhere yeah okay so i'm enjoying this being home right now it's a shame we have to go through this but i'm enjoying being home right now to catch up yeah it, it, it's awesome though that you're picking out the positives because i know david and i were talking before too about how of course there are lots of negatives that come from it but if you look for the positives, like there are, you know, certain benefits. And I know a lot of people even have been kind of reconnecting with themselves in a sense when they're always going and now they have some more time to think and do what they want to do. So, I mean, I appreciated you a ton for coming on today. And what are you active on Instagram normally too? Is that a good place for our listeners to follow up with you as well? No, <laughs> I try. <laughs> David helps me a lot on Instagram. Yeah, uh -huh. contact me there. I just went like any other one. Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, like LinkedIn. Well, YouTube. definitely Facebook. I, 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 yeah. My biggest following on the Facebook. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you so much for coming on today, Frank. Well, I appreciate it too. I really appreciate the invite. It's fun talking to you. You made it very easy. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. And, and again, remember, uh, Wishman, I'm going to promote here, right? Yeah. The movie, but the book, we didn't talk about the book. Oh, the book. The book, this is what inspired the movie. If it wasn't for the book, there would never really been a movie. So that's what happens there. And again, you can contact me. It's on Amazon, but you can contact me on Facebook or through the website again, wishman1thenumber1.com, uh, if you'd like to purchase a copy. Awesome. Well, there you guys go. Either Netflix, Amazon, or the website. One of those three for the book, Facebook, or the website for the contact. Awesome having you on, Frank. All right. Thank you. So long. And that is a wrap. Thank you guys so much for listening for today's top three takeaways. I just want to make a little comment before I dive in, right? Out of these top three, if you can just focus on one, right? And just implement that for 23 days minimum, it will change your life. If you can do that with one thing out of each three, each episode, like I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely mean that right? Set up your environment so that way you can implement it consistently too. Have a journal where you remind yourself each day and night, whatever it is. Wake up in the morning. What am I going to practice today? When I go to bed, did I practice this? You know, that simple, literally one sentence and it will make a huge difference. So, cause all this sounds great. Everything I say, do this, do that. The guests say, this is what I did. This it's great, but it doesn't stick if you don't make it stick. You know what I mean? So with that being said, the first thing that I noticed about Greg's, Greg's, gosh, I'm thinking Greg Reed. And now he's uh, Frank's friend who I interviewed too, which is actually, you know, how I got to Frank, which is a lesson in it of itself for any of you out there that are looking to make connections. You know, you really only have to start with one and then start branching out from there and kind of leveraging like, hey, I know blank. Would you like to blank, right? So first one is, being humble and his integrity. You could just tell that that man is a genuine soul, like super humble guy, full of integrity. And that has got him so far. Like there's, he, he could have taken a six figure salary from Make-A-Wish and nobody would have even blamed him. I don't think, right. He's helped so many people. They would have been like, yeah, he deserves that. You know, like he went through so many hardships to set it all up, but no, nah, he's just like, I'm just going to, you know, keep growing this and work a full-time job as a police officer. 
I mean, just being humble and having that integrity is huge throughout what he's been able to accomplish in his life. So just practicing those two in my own life is definitely something that I'm going to take away from this is making sure that, you know, even though I have lied in the past, I mean, everyone's lied, right? It's never too late to really turn around any area of your life that you want to, right? I'm not a consistent liar or whatnot, but there have been some things I know that I've been insecure about and, you know, I haven't lied, but I've kind of exaggerated. And that's something where it's just an ego problem. And, you know, I'm going to be open. I'm going to get rid of my ego and we're going to move on with life, right? Life is a learning process. It's a journey, not a destination. The second thing is tons of people did not believe in his mission. Gosh, like it's so funny to me. And I even want to emphasize a little more throughout the show, but look how big make wish is. It would be foolish for somebody to say that knowing the result. But the thing is, people don't know the results and it's up to you to get those results. And some people might look at it and be like, well, the media kind of like, you got lucky. The media, let me tell you, there's strategic ways to get media coverage, right? There's strategic ways to get quote unquote lucky. It's funny. I think it's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. The harder I work, the more lucky I get. (laughs) And it's so true. It's like you really put in something, you do your research, you reverse engineer what successful people have done before and you put your own spin on it to how to make it even better. You'll have a lot of success, but tons of people did not believe in his mission and look how that turned out, you know? So I just thought that that was awesome to hear, especially if you're at the beginning of something and people don't believe in you now. That might not work, but you pivot. And if you don't, you don't really fail until you quit, right? And you don't even fail at that point if you quit, if you want to do something else in your life, if you want to do it. But if you still want to do whatever it is that you set out to do and you're quitting because you don't think you can achieve it, that's when you fail, right? So for me, you know, my first business, I clearly wanted to be successful. Well, it wasn't, right? But I pivoted. Technically, sure, I quit that business and started a new venture. But in my mind, I never quit. I'm just finding, I just found a way that didn't work. I learned from it. And now I'm starting something that, you know, hopefully will work to the level of success that I want it to. And I know for a fact I'm going to get there because I won't give up until I do, right? So it's just inevitable. Like, it's funny. In my mind, I've already accomplished my goals. Time just needs to catch up. And that's the honest to God truth. So, and I share that because I feel like people can get value from hearing that, right? I don't share that to beat my chest and look cool. The third thing here is surround yourself with smarter people than you. Frank realized and the board realized with Frank that Make-A-Wish was not going to grow based solely upon people who were volunteering their time. It's great. It's humble, but they needed an expert in, you know, financial planning with their uh, CFO. I'm sure they needed some people to take over their marketing department to see how they can even reach more people. And by making those investments, they were able to reach even more people, even though it might've cost money up front. So it was definitely worth it. But he realized that these people need to be smarter in their fields than they are, than they are right now. And very humble about going about that back with the humility to recognize that and hand it over, you know, his baby that he um, co-founded. So it's just very important. Whatever you're doing in life, I, I love surrounding myself with smarter people. It's so fun. Like, you just got to put your ego aside and realize that nobody knows everything and that there are always going to be people who are smarter than you in a certain area. And you could resent them in a weird way, like, oh, they're smarter than me. Or you could put your ego aside, become friends with them and learn from them. And that's what I prefer to do. And I feel like that's what makes people happier and makes them way better off in life in general. So I appreciate you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure that you leave a review if you got value from this. It does mean the world for me and it helps other people discover the show and it helps them transform their life. So it would mean a lot. And make sure you go check out, you know, Frank and what he's doing over on different platforms that he promoted, you know, towards the end of the podcast. So appreciate you guys a ton for watching and have a great rest of your day.